This episode of the Third Sector Podcast is sponsored by Salesforce. And if you have 10 minutes of browsing time spare, you should check out their social impact center, salesforce.org, which focuses on partnering with the global community of change makers. Salesforce.org's unique business unit is dedicated to creating solutions for nonprofit, educational, and philanthropic organizations so they can have a greater impact. And they provide access to powerful technology that empowers change makers to build a better world. Hello and welcome to the Third Sector Podcast. I'm Rebecca Cooney, Senior Features and Analysis Writer. And I'm Emily Burt, Editor of Third Sector, the UK's leading publication for the voluntary and not-for-profit sector. After a short break due to the coronavirus crisis, we're back to delve a little deeper into some of the conversations being had in our community, learn more about exciting innovations and probe some of the issues we're facing. This month, we'll be hearing how the non-profit sector can plan for the new normal following the coronavirus crisis. This was the topic of a third sector webinar this month, and we'll be listening in to find out what steps our guests recommend for charities in the coming months. We'll also be speaking to Claire Rowney, the new chair-elect of the Institute of Fundraising, as she prepares for her new role. And we'll be bringing you some much-needed good news, sharing some of the best stories we've heard of charities doing fantastic work. A kind of coronavirus care package, if you will. So we've got all of that to come, but first, how has lockdown been treating you, Emily? Lockdown's been fine, but I think I'm just glad we're starting to ease out of it now. We're coming into the summer. Um, I've seen a few local shops have just started sort of reopening their doors and people are back out and about where I am. I've been locked down somewhere quite rural, so it really has been a ghost town. And now people are out riding their bikes, they're walking again, and everyone is just so pleased to see different faces. Um, Everyone's just like, hi! So everyone's saying hello a lot more than they did before lockdown. Um, And it definitely helps that the sun is also coming out to um how about you um what have i been up to i've napped a lot um good. i've learned to make pita bread i've learned to Very make good. pita bread which is incredibly satisfying um because it kind of it just sort of goes poof in the oven and it's really quite good fun to watch um Excellent. i also uh, i if you follow me on social media you'll have noticed that i've made a lot of daft costumes uh for the 2.6 challenge back in One april of my personal lockdown highlights that <laughs> i enjoyed it so much so this was obviously where the London Marathon got cancelled. Um, the uh, uh, so the two point six challenge was set up to kind of try and sort of recoup some of the money that, that wasn't raised there. Uh, so people could come up with any challenge they could do at home involving the numbers two and six. So people were you know running two point six miles or you know doing twenty six burpees or something like that. And and yeah, none of that is really my bag. So I thought, well, you know, what can I do? And um, I rather enjoy fancy dress, so I ended up making. 26 different costumes suggested by donors um, and it was a lot of fun as uh, so the money went towards uh, the National Emergencies Trust and uh, Refuge and yeah it, just, it was a lot of fun. My personal favourite was The Little Mermaid. I, I thought uh, <laughs> if, you, if you go online somewhere in this fantastic thread you can find Rebecca sitting in the bath with a huge fishtail on and uh, holding a fork and an amazing red wig. So I, yeah, I thought it was just hugely innovative and very enjoyable. Do you ever just wear them around the house now just because? I think I might with the Frida Kahlo one. I really rather enjoyed the Frida Kahlo get up. Um, so yeah, I may do start doing that from now on. Excellent. Well, should we get on? Yes, let's. (laughs) 
So a huge number of charities have been affected by this pandemic, seeing their income fall and demand for their services rise. And in the short term, they've been taking a huge number of creative steps to keep afloat. Now, as the sector begins to look towards recovery, many are asking what steps they can take next. So on the 18th of June, Third Sector sat down with a panel of charity leaders to discuss their approach for planning for changing times and for managing that road to recovery. We heard from Alison Dufosi, Chief Executive of World Bicycle Relief, Kate Lee, Chief Executive of Alzheimer's Society, Joe Kreese, Chief Executive of the Together Company, and Tufail Hussein, Director of Islamic Relief UK, on everything from how they approach staffing arrangements like furloughing to financial planning for an uncertain future. Here's what they had to say. So moving on to our next set of discussion points. So what approaches have you taken to planning for your finances given the current lack of certainty? And following up from that, uh, lessons from the pandemic. Are you planning to have staff work remotely more in future? And have you run any successful virtual fundraising campaigns during the pandemic? So to fail, how has it been for your organisation? Because of Ramadan, I, I think that we, we I, I mean, in, in, when I was in conversations with my fellow leaders within the DEC, it was clear that we, we had taken an action a lot sooner than others. And that's probably because of the Ramadan period, because it just the panic stations because of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we implemented a financial resilience plan. And through this plan, we, there were a number of measures that were taken. That included uh, every department, with the exception of fundraising, were asked to immediately uh, make a 10% saving within their expenditure budgets. Uh, alongside that, we've also drawn up uh, a number of financial scenarios that give plans for potential savings if income is reduced by 20, 30 and 50%. Um, and, and that gives clear sort of guidelines on, w- on what needs to be done within each department. We, we, we put in place a recruitment freeze. Uh, we suspended the um, spending of unrestricted project funds. The, the board of directors took, uh, so this was before the furlough scheme uh, was announced. The, the board of directors uh, agreed to take a salary sacrifice to, to support, particularly, we, we felt that the uh, the closed operation was going to be affected. So we wanted to support them um, and ensure that they were still being paid um, th- through this difficult period. And, um, you know, we, we, did, we, did, we announced it and around 50 members of our staff also voluntarily took a salary sacrifice too. We've delayed a number of large projects uh, that included um, the refer- refurbishment of offices, the implementation of our CRM system, and put in place robust monitoring of finances. In terms of lessons learned, so many. Uh, <laughs> I start with work, work from home. Uh, you know, it works. It works. And we're now talking about maybe uh, we've got a we've got a, a lovely office space in Waterloo, and we're, we're talking about now actually maybe uh, sit, you know allowing people to work from home, saving saving space, and renting that out to to bring some income in for the organisation. We we already had plans to implement a digital transformation program seeing the success of online fundraising during Ramadan. During, I mean, we, we, we have a very young audience, um, relatively speaking, when you compare it to the mainstream. And the so digital was always a very important part of our strategy. And it would normally bring in around 40% of our income during during throughout the whole year. During the Ramadan period, income through online platforms doubled from the previous year. So we, were all, we always had plans to move into the online trading world. And, and they and they were forced to start this. Those plans were in place for quite a long time, uh, but they were forced to start this during the pandemic and and saw a you know considerable profit through some of those efforts, profits of thirty percent on some products. So that was uh, that was something that was uh, a very important learning for us. In terms of fundraising, what worked for us? Peer to peer fundraising worked really well for us. So we had volunteers, five hundred volunteers that um, took just basically created a fundraising page, and went out there and fundraised. 
Some of them did, you know, did some sort of activity, but most of them didn't. And they raised, what, 465,000 pounds? Fundraising through social media was very successful. So usually social media is a, is a channel that we've used to engage audiences through positive stories. But we, we changed our strategy and actually uh, implemented a, 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 a fundraising strategy through social media. So made our asks very clear. We, we put together a campaign that, that made clear asks and they, they were very successful. Brilliant. Uh, so, Joe, how has it been for your organisation in terms of financial planning and the lessons you're bringing away from the pandemic? Yeah. So in terms of financial planning, um, in many ways, what we're doing is not actually that different from our regular financial planning. The smaller organisations maybe tend to live with a higher level of, of uncertainty or perhaps shorter horizons than, than larger ones, although that's obviously not necessarily always the case. We're actually using that experience quite quite effectively at the moment um, to, to plan around scenarios for the future, given what we can, what we can know. Um, so we've started kind of building it on some key assumptions that we think will be the case no matter what. So demand is likely to continue to be high. And for many of our clients, lockdown easing is not going to be, it's not going to happen very soon. They're going to continue to want to be shielding in in some way for a while. Uh, We need to continue to ask our clients and our members what they want and need from us and our volunteers. Things are changing all of the time and they're the experts in what they want and need from us. We know that funding is challenging already and that it's going to get more challenging and there's likely to be pressure on all types of income. And sometimes the ones that have been more historically stable or predictable, so contracts perhaps, actually they don't look as stable and predictable as they perhaps previously had. We basically decided that we should make the most of all of the um, emergency funding and fundraising opportunities that present themselves, the ones that are suitable for us. And actually, we've had a pretty good quarter in terms of donations, in terms of people um, either, as uh, Tufail said, doing kind of uh, community-based fundraising for us or some online fundraising, things that we had started to dabble in but hadn't really um, done a great deal of. The key successes amongst those examples are the ones where that has been very driven by the community itself or by an individual who is passionate about raising money for us in a certain way. There's a brilliant woman who's uh, riding 2.6 miles on her unicycle to raise money for us. And, you know, you couldn't dream that up. And that's what gives, gets people excited to donate. So that's fantastic. But we have no way of knowing whether that's going to continue. You know, you hope for the best and plan for the worst, don't you? We have a monthly income review meeting in which um, people who are accountable for certain fundraising or financial targets we get together and we report to each other. So it's not people reporting to me, it's us as a team reporting to each other. Although obviously, ultimately, I'm myself and the board are responsible. We have a corrective action plan that gives us a kind of 12 month forward view of of all of these different aspects. So if we don't achieve this by this time, then this action needs to be taken. So we don't have to make that up every time we need to do something. We already know what process there is and what action needs to be taken. And from a leadership point of view, that makes it much less draining. So we're trying to plan as far ahead as we can see, um, but obviously it's slightly guesswork. Um, and, and actually, we have to learn to be a bit OK with that. You know, it's hard and it's stressful and the uncertainty will remain. So some of my lessons from the pandemic. So we've moved our board meetings and subcommittee meetings to a more frequent but shorter meetings schedules um, and therefore decisions that need to be taken can be taken by the right level at the right time Um, and I think that governance and accountability when you're moving really quickly and often reacting in 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 a space that you care so deeply about that you can sometimes make more personal decisions than you might otherwise it's really important to have those checks and balances still working well. Brilliant Um, so Kate uh, how has this been at uh, your organisation? 
so for us, we are yeah, losing 25% of our income would be lovely, but that's not going to be the case for us. We are going to probably lose 50% of our income, so 45 million we'll lose um, by the end of next March. And that's because we are, the way that our voluntary income is made up is quite heavily um, events reliant. We know that we are planning on prolonged issues around things like legacies because of you know, moving into the latter half of the year, houses are, housing markets predicted to slow down. So there's a huge number of our income streams that will just be really uh, affected. And I think the big challenge for us, like many people have said, is that things have held up at the moment. But my sense is that the big bang is still to come. So this won't just be the loss of income this year. It's the loss of income over the next three years. And we're planning on probably the organisation shrinking by 25% for three years. Um, and that is going to be kind of significantly painful for us. So we've mapped out the full, we, we're taking the full cost out of our organisation. Unlike some charities, we have very low reserves. So we don't, we've never, we haven't unfortunately got a, a rainy day pot, despite the fact it's clearly raining. We have uh, announced the closure of 37 offices across the organisation, which we have served notice on already. And just to give you an indication of scale of Alzheimer's Society, we spend about £30,000 a week on travel and accommodation. And we have spent none of that since the start of lockdown. In fact, last week's travel claim in the organisation was £200. So for us, uh, a lot of those savings have come in because of lockdown. And, and some of the concern is that that won't now continue as lockdown starts to come off and teams want to start to come back together. The other area that we've stopped is we've stopped all future investment in research. So we usually would have given out about £7 million worth of research, new research grants this year. Sadly, we've got over 400 staff at risk of redundancy at the moment. And we, we probably will be losing those staff uh, into the year. So just a few things about lessons learned. Um, some things have gone incredibly well, like others. We've had a couple of very good fundraising um, months, actually, strangely enough. Our emergency appeal has generated £4 million, which is the best appeal we've ever run. And we've done particularly well on things like Facebook birthdays, where we've generated over half a million pounds last month alone. So, you know, I, those that are wondering about whether it's worth putting extra investment at this difficult time into social media fundraising, I would really, really encourage it. Lots of people have said how hard it must be for me to be a new chief exec. But I just want to pick up on something that Joe said. Joe said how hard it is when you're emotionally invested in a lot of the delivery and activities going on. You know the people very well. And this may sound very harsh. I care deeply about my workforce, but I don't know them all personally. Most of them I've never met. I've only met one of my directors in person. And actually, I'm not as invested in a lot of the service delivery. So... In some ways, there have been some advantages for being a new chief exec in that I've been able to look at things with a very dispassionate, clean, cold look, just looking at the impact, looking at whether it's supporting COVID-19 response and being quite challenging about the fact that some things have got to go. And I, I think if I'd have been at my previous role, click sergeant, trying to do that would have been like just ripping your own heart out. And a final thought for me is around partnerships. And this is a downside of being a new chief exec. Although I think I've really managed to establish a relationship via Zoom with my organisation, I haven't got the same partnership network. I haven't got the same trust and reliance uh, across other dementia charities that I would have had in my old world. That's meant I've been able to, I, I feel like I'm missing a limb because usually I would be able to innovate very quickly 
by going to colleagues and saying, hey, you already do that. Would you pick up mine and, and I'll pick up that bit of yours? Which I truly believe is a huge way out of this is new partnerships, joint working. Um, so, Alison, how has it been for your organisation uh, looking at financial planning and uh, what lessons you'll be taking away from the pandemic? Um, well, I, th- I think firstly, I, I quite envy Kate's position in some ways because it, it, the, the whole ripping your heart out thing, I, I completely see where she's coming from on, on that point. In, in the UK, um, we've grown uh, income significantly over the last three years, especially corporate income, which had grown by over 1,600%. And when this all hit and our partners all started to close, I was um, incredibly grumpy for a couple of weeks. And, and then I had a bit of a word with myself and I thought, right, OK, we, you know, we've, we've got to do something. Our financial planning is an ongoing and ever moving topic. We're continually looking out to the future to see where we think we'll land. All of our budgets have been slashed. Our only expenditure now is salaries and, and banking fees. But we're lucky as a, as a global organisation that our marketplaces all have very different ways of fundraising. So what works for us in the UK may not work in America, but may work in Australia, may not work in the EU. And we're also lucky, I guess, that as the, the pandemic is also at different stages around our different marketplaces. So if one market is doing poorly, and others are, are less affected, that's actually really helpful that we can rely on one another um, across the, the globe. My focus for the year, my strategy had very much been on organisations who deal with mobility. So hotels, transport, holidays, sustainability companies, etc. And these revenue streams have certainly stopped for, for the foreseeable future. As many others have said, between March and June, my income is actually up on what I project, projected in March, um, which, which is great. But I'm still looking at potentially 40% income loss over the course of the year. Um, I, I think the, the big benefit for us is that there's this huge cycling resurgence and I'm a, I'm a great opportunist. Um, many of our supporters are cyclists and they understand the, the freedom and the power and the joy of, of being on a bike and they're keen to help, which is, is great. And we're trying to take as much advantage of that as we, we possibly can. Much of our funding in the UK uh, comes through our peer-to-peer fundraising, people doing events, which are obviously now all cancelled. And, and additionally, some of the cycling events where we would ordinarily have been a partner at that event They've all been cancelled as well. So our, our individual fundraising is, is going to be hugely affected. We have turned to the world of virtual cycling. I know that cycle trainers, where you put your bike on, on a trainer and, and cycle indoors, they've actually sold out in the country. Um, but many people who have them are doing challenges on Zwift and RGT and other virtual platforms. We're also planning to do a a, a DIY cycle ride in September. So it doesn't matter where in the world you do it. You set your own challenge and you you go away and hopefully do some peer to peer for that. So so hopefully that will work as well. Last year, we signed up to the Big Give. If you haven't done it, I would say I think it's still open. Um, We uh, signed up a lot of new funding and new fundraisers that we would never have been able to reach before. So that was great. We've got a couple of, of questions from the audience and uh, there's quite a juicy one to start with. How have you found the government's response to the voluntary and non-profit sector during the pandemic? To be constructive, I, I think that it's very, very patchy. 
um, it's extremely difficult for a lot of organisations to get support. There are holes all over the place and organisations are falling through them left, right and centre. And my view, and I don't think I'm alone in, in this, is that it, it's not a very considered and effective response um, and it works well for some um, and not very well for others and it could do with a really urgent re-looking at that's the polite version and another question we've got in and uh, we have mentioned uh, sort of some of the positive uh, positive aspects of recent weeks sort of scattered throughout people's comments but uh, what other positive outcomes have you had since and during the covid crisis uh, does anybody want to answer that i think the passion of the staff actually they they all understood why they had to be furloughed they were absolutely gutted. People who work for charities are incredibly committed individuals. It's it's a life choice, and I'm really grateful for that. Alison was spot on with our staff again. Camaraderie, the um, the the focus, um, and the spirit. You know the way they came together during the crisis and ensured that we were still able to maximise on those few opportunities that we still had was was just an inspiration. Fantastic. Earlier this month, the Institute of Fundraising announced that Claire Rowney had been elected as its next chair. Rowney is the Executive Director of Fundraising, Marketing and Communications at Macmillan Cancer Support and will take up the role of chair at the IOF's virtual annual general meeting on the 6th of July. Rowney, who has been a trustee of the IOF since 2018 and vice chair since last year, will succeed Amanda Bringens, who steps down at the end of her three-year term. It's not the only change taking place at the IOF this summer. It will be rebranded as the Chartered Institute of Fundraising having successfully obtained chartered status after almost a decade. I spoke to Rowney to find out what she was hoping to achieve in her term as the organisation's chair. So Claire, thank you very much for joining me. I hope you're coping well with lockdown. So you've just been appointed as the chair of the Institute of Fundraising. Uh, What made you want to do this role? I wanted to be chair of the Institute of Fundraising for a number of reasons. I think probably firstly and most importantly, um, I've been a fundraiser for about 20 years and when I started to interact with the Institute a bit more and understand a bit more about their work and realised that some of the influencing that they were doing and some of the ways that they were helping big organisations and sole fundraisers make choices about the future of fundraising was really impressive and quite forward thinking and visionary. And that was really what made me first become involved with the Institute. And then, you know, I... um, I'm a great kind of believer in women in leadership and in us playing our part in whatever it is that we choose to do and that we're passionate about. And so became involved kind of directly as a trustee a couple of years ago at the Institute. Thoroughly enjoyed that. Thoroughly enjoyed working alongside some really amazing trustees and a really great team at the Institute. And so when um, Amanda's term was coming to an end... I thought, why not? You know, um, I'll be excited to do it. I think some of the things that are on our agenda at the Institute are very exciting. And, you know, I felt that I could contribute to that and I was excited to do so. I'm very lucky, actually, to get the role. Brilliant. And and what are you hoping to achieve during your term? Well, I mean, I think there are a few things. I think um, Amanda has done an absolutely great job with the team at the Institute of really driving um, the EDI agenda forward. Um, so I'm really excited about continuing the work there because that work certainly isn't done. I think we've had a really strong start, but there's a lot that we need to do um, to really make sure that the right behaviours and values um, are imbued kind of across the sector. And, and we can do that in a number of ways, but we kind of need to keep going. That's by no means a sprint. That's most definitely a marathon. Um, 
another reason that I you know really really wanted this role was about um promoting the sector as a profession of choice um you know i mentioned that i drifted into the sector and um we see that a lot and i'm sure you've heard that a lot when you speak to fundraisers oh absolutely exactly people are delighted to do it they think it's brilliant but they certainly don't leave school or university or college saying well obviously i want to be a fundraiser and um, I, I was kind of really excited about the opportunity to help influence that a bit and really promote the sector as, uh, as a first choice for people, um, you know, starting off their careers. And, I, and that's actually, I think, probably one of the reasons that turning into a chartered institute will be really exciting for us. Um, and then really, I suppose the other thing that I am passionate about in my day-to-day role um, at Macmillan is innovation and um, You know, I think for a long time we have talked about the sector lacking a real kind of heart of innovation and really looking for the next um, phase of fundraising. And um, I want to help support the sector in really moving us forward and thinking about new ways that we can deliver um, income for the beneficiaries that, you know, are really why we all get out of bed every day. So So there are a few things. And then, of course, you know, it would be remiss of me not to mention that we're in the middle of a pandemic. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> so um you know i think the institute has a really important role um to play there which i will definitely play a part in which is kind of helping the sector restart fundraising you know it's been a really really difficult few months and do that safely and respectfully and um you know with integrity and i think we can really help there we can help um organizations charities we can influence government you know we've been involved in Uh, ministerial roundtables talking about you know how we kind of you know return to our new normal and what fundraising needs from the government but also the part that we can play in rebuilding civil society I mean that sounds very lofty doesn't it but you know (laughs) I think there are lots of ways that we can help people to understand the good that we can do um, and and uh, you know how we can support um, in you know the, the the return to this to this new normal that we're all talking about, and none of us really knows what it will be like. Mm. Um, and you mentioned briefly chartered status, and obviously that's due to come in sort of at the same time as you officially take up the role, isn't it? The Institute of Fundraising will officially become the Chartered Institute of Fundraising, and that's been a long time in the works. What is that going to mean for the profession of fundraising? Do you think? Well, you know, that's it's a really interesting question, and um, I I confess that. When I joined the Institute as a trustee, this was a conversation that was already happening. And, uh, you know, I had some questions about it when I first started about, is it, does it make us a little bit old and dusty? And is this really something that's going to attract, um, you know, people to the sector? And, and I was actually really glad I asked those questions because I was really persuaded that it was absolutely the right thing to do for the sector for a number of reasons. The first is that one of the reasons that people aren't attracted to the sector is there aren't clearly defined career paths. It's not regarded as a career with real gravitas and somewhere where you can really build a career. And um, I think the chartered status will really help people kind of entering the sector to understand what they can do you know, how far they have to work in order to get the various kind of qualifications that are on offer. Um, And really, most importantly, you know, supporting our EDI work on attracting greater diversity of people, you know, that we aren't going to be hiring, you know, just people who have graduated from universities or have, you know, um, kind of come in that way. And, And so I 
I was sceptical to start with and I'm now kind of one of the greatest champions of chartered status because I think it can make a real difference to the sector and to the diversity in the sector and to kind of building just a much more vibrant, exciting, inspiring workforce for us all. Hmm. And I mean, on a kind of a more day to day level, is it going to have any kind of concrete impact on the way the IOF operates, do you think? Yeah, I think it will actually. I think um, I think the, the membership base will change a bit as a result of the um, chartered status, and I think that's exciting. And I think we'll have some new voices, and I think that will be different. I think you know one of the roles that we'll have to play, you know, which I mentioned j- just now, is building really great career paths for people. And I think we'll see ourselves focusing much more on that over the coming years. And I also think, you know, there is something about a chartered status just giving you a bit more gravitas and influence and, you know, being listened to a bit more. And I think, you know, in the last um, couple of years, we've really seen the Institute stepping into that space of influencing and of doing a really, really good job of it. And I think chartered status will only support that and help. So... I do. I think there'll be some. I think there'll be some philosophical changes. I think there'll be some long-term changes. But I think in the ne- near term, we'll also see some really concrete positives as a result of it. Uh, brilliant. And the IOF represents fundraisers from charities of all sizes, but including yourself. That we've had a string of chairs of the IOF from organisations among the top ten biggest fundraising charities in the country. Obviously, Amanda was from British Heart Foundation. Um, before that, was British Red Cross. How can you reassure fundraisers at small organisations that you'll be able to represent them effectively? I mean, particularly, you know, people who are lone fundraisers in a small charity. It's a really good question. And actually, this is a question I was asked at my interview for the role. And you'll be pleased to know I've got a good answer for this. So first of all, um, we have a really great board of trustees who are made up of a real kind of range of experience and background and size of organisation. And that's really important. I think a chair's role is not about projecting a personal opinion. It's about collecting the views of lots and lots of different stakeholders and assimilating those um, on behalf of the board. So um, you're right, in my day-to-day role as um, Executive Director of Fundraising at Macmillan, you could say that I have a very long established kind of view of what a large organisation might want from the Institute. But I don't kind of step into the role um, as a director of fundraising at Macmillan, I do, you know, I do so very much kind of consciously as um, as chair of um, the IOF. And I think, uh, you know, a shout out to Amanda, who has done that so brilliantly. I actually hadn't met Amanda until I joined the Board of Trustees. And I've been really blown away by her ability to switch off her British Heart Foundation hat and switch on her chair of the Institute of Fundraising hat. So she has been um, a brilliant kind of inspiration to me, I suppose, in in terms of the way I'll do that. But the other thing I would say in terms of kind of smaller organisations, regional organisations, sole fundraisers, is that the way the the kind of membership is organised and with the regional groups and so on, there's really strong voices in the regions and from sole fundraisers. And they're a really, really important part of our community that actually are really well represented. So I have no particular concerns about that. Um, It would be great to see some sole fundraisers or um, smaller organisations represented as the chair um, at some point. But I'm I kind of I can't be sad about it because I'm delighted to be doing the role. And it's great that Macmillan, my organisation and British Heart Foundation and the Red Cross have all been so supportive of having their directors of fundraising do this because it's a commitment and it takes time. No, that makes a lot of sense. 
when kind of Amanda started three years ago, we were sort of just off the back of the 2015 fundraising scandals, the information commissioner's fines. There was a lot of concern about GDPR. The fundraising landscape looks very different now, and obviously it looks very different to how it did in January at this point. So those have kind of been the big challenges that we've had in the last few years. What are the big challenges you foresee for the next few years? Fundamentally, the fact that so many charities that rely on voluntary income are in such desperate state at the moment. So we're starting from a very kind of unusual and unexpected position. So I think one of the challenges is going to be helping support these charities that are in real jeopardy to rebuild. And I think, you know, the government have made a great initial package of £750 million to support the sector. But we all know, those of us within the sector know, that that, that is nowhere near enough. And that, you know, many, many organisations have had no hope of being able to access any of those and their funding has literally been switched off. So I think the first challenge is is, um, supporting organisations to return to sustainability and I think that will be a big challenge. And, you know, one of the things that really interests me is this crossover between donation and support in a financial sense and the, the you know the feeling of doing good that people get and that you know there's a really interesting move I think in civil society that we saw before the pandemic but that I think might have been accelerated by the pandemic in giving not being enough for a supporter and um, them needing a kind of fuller um, experience in order to you know feel fulfilled and feel like it's something that they want to do. So I think one of the challenges for the sector is going to be to shift and probably shift quite quickly to accommodate those needs and really satisfy what it is that um, our supporters are looking for. Personally, because I love a challenge and I love innovation and I love change, I'm really excited about that. Um, But it will mean us acting in different ways and us prioritising things differently. Um, And then, of course, you know, I suppose the other challenge um, is just making sure that our the agenda that we felt was important at the Institute before the pandemic remains, you know, very much on the table. You know, the COVID has been quite distracting, hasn't it, for us all in all of our (laughs) lines of work. You know, so much of the first kind of certainly month or so was about just survival. But now, you know, three months on, it's time to make sure that we don't lose sight of what our real priorities are. You know, the world will move on from the pandemic. Sometimes, you know, you wake up and you feels quite hard to believe that it will ever end. But, you know, I think we have to hold the faith that it will. And then um, we have to think about, um, you know, what those things that were really important and not lose sight of those. Brilliant. Well, thank you very much for joining us, Claire. My absolute pleasure. Thank you for having me. So, yes, everybody is suffering from severe lockdown fatigue and there is still no clear end in sight to this pandemic. But it's so important that you do find the bright sparks where you can. And once again, we have made a list of a few interesting or cheerful stories that have caught our attention in the past month. So first up, Rebecca, give me something to be cheerful about. Okay, so for the last edition of the magazine, I did uh, an article called The Charity Sector Does Not Die. And it was just looking at the amazing work that um, the sector has been doing to deal with the coronavirus pandemic, to deal with the huge increase in demand they've had and some of the challenges they're facing at the same time. So one of the kind of the best stories that came out of that was Brixton Soup Kitchen. Uh, Their chief exec and founder, Solomon Smith, was talking to me about how they are trying to feed homeless people. So they normally have a kitchen and a centre that people come into. 
Uh, they started feeding people uh, sort of outside the centre so that there was more room to socially distance. But then uh, they realised that they were having people who wouldn't normally come to them uh, who had been forced into going to the soup kitchen because of sort of uh, the issues with their finances related to the pandemic, where people had been furloughed, where they'd lost their jobs. Um, and because people were feeling quite a lot of shame and finding it very difficult to admit that they needed the help from the soup kitchen, what the um, soup kitchen started doing was leaving meals in phone boxes uh, and for, uh, dotted around London the old BT phone boxes no one use uh, uses anymore and we're just using them as a kind of drop-off centre and I don't know why but for some reason that just that detail just really got me um, and I just yeah it's not all superheroes wear capes but apparently they do use phone boxes and I yeah. just yeah that that did make me cry. It's the consideration for people's dignity and the understanding of that and then going the extra mile to do something so that they feel able to accept the help and accept the support. I think it's brilliant. And I think Brixton Soup Kitchen is just it's such a brilliant outfit anyway. You know, mm. there's lots, lo- lots to see there um, and great work going on. So, yeah, big thanks to Brixton Soup Kitchen for that. So I would like to give a shout out to Poets Inn. They're a small mental health charity that's currently offering free mental health and well-being video workshops to NHS frontline staff and key workers. They got a grant as part of some coronavirus fund- funding to um, develop this program, and it's going to give people an interactive and a helpful safe space where those who are feeling under strain from the pandemic can come and communicate and share their thoughts in a different way. And I just thought it was really nice. Like it's something really different. I know, Rebecca, you are all over poetry. (laughs) I'm probably in a far better position to be talking about this than I am. But I think it's really nice to see that we are starting to see just small parts of that funding, which is coming and has come from so many places across the course of this pandemic, starting to go into tangible actions. And even though this is a really small one, you can see that making a difference in its community which I think is great. No I think this is incredible I mean uh, sort of the sort of live poetry scene and the live poetry community is often a space where people feel able to share things that they perhaps wouldn't share in the rest of their lives and to talk about mental health issues and to then have something kind of structured and working with the NHS alongside that I think that's really powerful um, and just yeah creating an amazing space and community for people to share. Well thank you to Poets In. Rebecca, give me another piece of good news. Uh, So my piece of good news is uh, Mindful Monsters at Scope. So Scope developed these little cartoon characters as part of a subscription box that they run where they send out every month, uh, people pay, I think it's about £7.50 a month, and they get a box of family activities. And they're just little cards with these little monsters on that help introduce kids to mindfulness, that... um, give them sort of family activities to do together some games some fun um and they're just these really cute weird looking little monsters and they're now in talks with a major um film distribution company and a sort of media production company to develop uh they're sort of in the first stages of developing these characters into a full tv series and i was chatting chatting to tracy griffin who's the head of fundraising and communications at um scope earlier this month and she's just so enthused about the whole thing and i think it's just this lovely cheerful little story about yeah they're kind of hoping effectively these monsters will be the next teletubbies and you know what that's going to do in terms of talking about kids mental health but also for scope as a charity is just incredible so fingers crossed for those because I think they should be hearing the next week or so whether or not the deal is completely going through. 
I'm so excited about this because I remember covering it when it was just a subscription box and it was this small idea and a single thing. So it's so exciting to see that coming out and developing into something much bigger. And it just kind of shows that when you have a great idea, you have no idea how far it can go when you start putting it together. So super excited for Scope. Really, really hoping that this all comes together well. And I can't wait to see some mindful monsters on my TV screen. Yeah, and they are just so impassioned and enthused about it. You know, the interview with Tracy, which is one of those interviews, which just goes on and on and on and on because she had just had so much to say because she was so excited about it and it was fantastic. Brilliant. So what is your next uh, good thing, Emily? Um, my good thing, it's a, it's a really basic one, but just that charity shops are opening again. Woo. You know, I think it's great. Uh, it's quite a basic good thing, but it is, just makes me feel really happy to know that the shops are coming back, that we're going to be able to start getting volunteers back into the shops and that people are going to be able to start coming, shopping and picking up great items again and just helping that retail arm get back on its feet. Hmm. And charities are also innovating and pivoting once again so that they can thrive under social distancing so uh, snaps to example for the british heart foundation who have launched a free postal donation service and because of this people can now donate items that they've saved up during the lockdown without having to necessarily go back out to the shops once they start to reopen to drop those things off so i think it's great i hope that it goes really really well to all of the charities who are reopening their shops over the next couple of weeks and we're just all behind you and best of luck to you yeah no i'm very excited about this on a professional level and a personal level because i love a good charity shop you do love a charity um, shop haul i do i do um yeah and the the british heart foundation's free postal stuff is amazing just because there have been so many people doing tidy outs uh, during the um, lockdown where they've had nothing better to do so there's going to be a lot of donations going to be a lot of good stuff in charity shops hopefully I'm excited Uh, yes Um, so my third good thing uh, is uh, the statue of Edward Colston going in the Avon Um, I know it's not technically a charity story but um, I grew up near Bristol and it's always been the kind of the weird relationship between Bristol and slavery and the kind of kind of I don't know lack of acknowledgement that is often there about about it um just to see somebody take action and I think you know the people that I know locally most of them have just gone this is amazing good on you um and yes like I say it's not technically a charity story but I think his status as a philanthropist and kind of a rejection of you know him being a philanthropist first and you know a slave a second says a lot about what charity should be in the modern world you know it's a force that fights to make people's lives better not a a fig leaf to elevate those who contributed to making their lives worse in the first place Um, and I think moving on from that Victorian notion of philanthropy which was a person with too much money deciding who they deserved should do well um, or should be supported to a force that seeks genuine equality in the world I think is is a really important uh, step. I think everything that you've said there, Rebecca, is absolutely spot on. And that question of what charity needs to be in the modern world and how it needs to evolve and move past its history and its tradition, not erase it, but actually engage critically with it and say Mm. where things were wrong. Can we make them right? Can we drive our energy towards improving that now? This is a really crucial moment for this as we are looking to that future. So I'm going to be really, really interested to see how those conversations continue to evolve um, in the coming months. And I hope that they do. This is not the end of the journey. It's the start of it. And I think that's going to be amazing to watch. So it has been an extraordinary couple of months reporting on the coronavirus pandemic. And as we look towards that new normal, we are still amazed by our audience 
who keep striving to support those who need it most during this global time of crisis. We'll be back with another episode soon, so make sure you subscribe to this, the Third Sector Podcast, on your favourite podcast app to be the first to know about it. Thank you to Claire Rowney, to the producer Ben Lonsborough, to our sponsors Salesforce.org and to you for listening.